Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this um, special episode of the American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking, uh, having a contemporary conversation about an immediate, important political issue. Uh, political, not just in the partisan sense, but political in the sense of our political institutions and our constitutional order. We're going to be talking about the situation in the House of Representatives and who will be the next Speaker of the House, and what perhaps history can show us about how we should be thinking about this and how the issue perhaps may get resolved. And for this conversation, I'm joined today with a, a good friend of the American Idea, a good friend of the Ashbrook Center, and our listeners know him well, Professor Joe Postel. Joe teaches political science, uh, politics, and government, at Hillsdale College, um, where he has been now for several years. He teaches in their, across the, the breadth of their programs, but in particular in American politics and the U.S. Constitution. He's the author of a number of books. Uh, let me highly recommend Joe Postel's work on the administrative state on bureaucracy, which is some of the most important work done in recent years, and on his work in Congress, uh, studying Congress. Joe, thanks so much for taking a little bit of your time today to be with us on The American Idea. Yeah, happy to be with you. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate your work, as I said, for Ashbrook, uh, uh, Core Documents, for example, uh, and your work uh, editing and selecting and working on those would be a great resource for our listeners and, of course, for students and teachers. Yeah, that's right. I uh, edited the core documents uh, reader on Congress, and uh, we might get into this in the conversation today. There's an event in 1910 where uh, Speaker Joseph Cannon faces a revolt and even faces a motion to vacate the speakership, which was until three weeks ago, the only time that had ever happened in Congress. And I edited the uh, portion of the congressional record where the debate over that revolt uh, uh occurred for the core documents reader and i think it got something like a thousand percent spike in traffic uh the day that uh speaker mccarthy was ousted so it was a, it was a timely document so yeah you're a you're a political scientist studying these historically but man they're of such current importance uh congress specifically the house of representatives is it a mess <laughs> um yeah, I think that depends on one's point of view. So I'll give you both sides maybe of that. Uh, and then maybe I'll tell you a little bit about which side I lean. There are some people out there who say this is just part of the normal give and take messiness of representative government. And so we shouldn't be too worked up about the fact that people in Congress are having debates, that they're giving speeches, that they are cheering and booing each other, that this is just the way things uh, used to work in Congress. If you go back to the 19th century and you watch, or I guess in this, if you read about how Congress used to work back then, they were all showing up for votes. They were all yelling at each other on the floor and that this is actually in some way a healthy thing for people to 
be hashing out their differences uh, on the floor of the legislature. On the other side of it, of course, we have no speaker of the House of Representatives right now. We're going on three weeks with no speaker. The government shutdown is looming in three to four weeks. And uh, there have been multiple candidates who've been attempted to reach that majority threshold on the floor of the House, and none of them can get there. And so this does seem to be like a chaotic time, especially given all of the crises that we face both uh, domestically and abroad. So uh, I think historically, the country has probably been through worse than this. Uh, on the other hand, this is not necessarily a, a high point for uh, the Congress. And in a way, this kind of shows that we've been heading down a, a pretty scary path for the last 10 to 15 years. And it's sort of culminated in what's happened over the last three weeks. Is it um, surprising that we're in this position? Has it surprised you as someone who has been a student of Congress and a scholar of Congress for a while um, that we've been, as you say, for three weeks now without a Speaker of the House? Yeah, I think it surprised a lot of people. It didn't surprise me. So I, I should I, I'm sort of taking some victory laps over the last few weeks because I think I I really did predict that this was coming. And I think if you saw what happened to Speaker John Boehner leading up to his uh, sort of somewhat forced resignation in 2015, and then Speaker Paul Ryan, another Republican speaker who was sort of shown the door and who, who retired from Congress, but was clearly under a lot of pressure to do that. We're now in a cycle of Republican speakers who are consistently under pressure from their own party to be less moderate, to be less compromising, to be less willing to engage in the, the bargaining of legislative politics. And so it was, I think, a natural conclusion to that process over the last 10 to 15 years that finally Republicans would just say, you know what, we're not playing anymore according to the, to the, to the old rules. We're just going to shut this place down. Um, and of course, this was already previewed when Speaker McCarthy accepted a deal to become Speaker in January, where he basically said, I'll lower the threshold of votes you need to bring this motion to vacate the speakership to the floor. So a lot of the, the warning signs, I think, were there in the last 10 to 15 years. And I would say even longer term, over the last century, this is something that, that people don't understand, but it's becoming clearer and clearer to us these days. Over the last century, political parties in America have be, become much weaker, not much stronger in American politics. And I think people look at voting pat patterns and voting behavior. They see people are really partisan today and they conclude from that, oh, we must have really strong parties. But I think what we're seeing today is people can be very partisan, but that doesn't mean that the parties are very strong. And the logical conclusion of where we've been going as a country over the last century has been to weaken our parties as mediating institutions. And so I think this is in some way sort of the writing was on the wall, I think, for some of these events. And I take it that to mean if, if for example, your view is if there were strong parties, in particular, in this case, the strong Republican Party that was united and had a had leadership that would really enforce discipline, there would never have been a motion to vacate or even a deal struck by Speaker McCarthy when he originally came on as speaker to lower the threshold because the party uh, leaders would have just said, no, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I think that's right. If you if you have, say, a much stronger party system, you're going to have, of course, in any two party system, the parties are going to have a lot of internal division. 
So we don't have a parliamentary system where you have seven or eight or 10 or 12 parties, each one of which represents five to 10% of the electorate where they're completely united on their basic ideas. We have big tent parties because our system logically produces this two-party system. Well, this means that any party that's got 48, 52% of the electorate has a lot of internal division. And so a strong party is needed essentially to make sure that that division stays internal, that it doesn't actually get outside of the family discussions in the party and onto the floor of the House of Representatives like it has in the last few weeks. So is this, a, a number of people have raised this question, is, is what we're seeing with the uh, failure to get a Speaker of the House, is it does it show you an institutional problem about Congress or does it show you a problem with the contemporary Republican Party? Yeah, I would say the answer to that is both. It shows a problem with Congress as it was constituted and a problem with where we are today. So let's take the first problem, the constitutional problem. Uh, in some ways, this is a constitutional virtue and a constitutional problem at the same time. And really, if there's one essay you should read to understand how Congress is functioning today, it's Federalist Number 10. It's incredible how brilliant that foundational essay was at identifying what Congress was going to be like in this large republic. Right. So as Madison says in that essay, you have a large republic. It has a diversity of interests. And the problem is that all of those interests are not going to work together to produce a majority. Now, Madison says, this is the great virtue of our system, because there will be no majority faction that emerges out of this system. There's so many different districts represented by so many different people, they'll never come together to, to do something unjust. But of course, from the other side of that coin, it's very difficult to get a majority together that is cohesive enough to do something that's in the public good. And so the same mechanisms that prevent a majority tyranny also prevent a good majority from emerging. And that's, I think, a constitutional problem for Congress. Congress is very weak, as designed by the framers. And so the that's built into the system. And I think in some ways, that's that's what's produced uh, the last few weeks. But then on top of that, right, the mechanism that produces that majority that is capable of governing is, of course, the political party. And that party, the, the, that notion of a strong party has existed in various periods of American history but it doesn't exist today. And so layered on top of this constitutional problem is a problem of the Republican Party today, namely that it doesn't have enough loyalty to act cohesively. Is uh, Some people are wondering, the, the speakers that you mentioned who have were sort of pushed out, forced out, or voted out, um, they, as you said, they were all Republicans in the last time. Is it a, you mentioned is weak parties. Some people I've heard say, well, it, it's a Republican party problem because Nancy Pelosi kept the speakership, even though there are factions and groups within the Democratic Party. Somehow they had the discipline or the focus or whatever it is necessary to maintain loyalty to her, even if they didn't always agree to her, but the Republicans don't do that. Is there a difference today in the two parties in this respect? Yeah, that is a million dollar question. Uh, and one that, like you, I've heard raised a few times over the past few weeks. Uh, I suppose here's the evidence in favor of that proposition, that this is really just a Republican Party problem and not a Democratic Party problem. Outside of, of course, the obvious evidence, which is that Democratic speakers don't ever face these sorts of revolts, at least in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, I think the evidence here in favor of that view is that 
Republicans, especially the ones who vote to vacate the speakership, prefer to get nothing done rather than something done. Um, and this is built in the kind of Republican Party, conservative party argument that government doing nothing can actually be a virtue, right? As the more limited government party, some Republicans think, well, it'd be better for nothing to happen than something to happen. And so by shutting the place down, I'm accomplishing a goal. Whereas Democrats don't necessarily see this the same way. They don't see accomplishing nothing as a goal. Now, that's, I think, an oversimplification. So I think the evidence actually is on the other side. I think, in other words, maybe in five to 10 years, we'll have a conversation where we'll look back on this moment and say, you know what, the Democratic Party was just facing its reckoning five to 10 years later. And I actually think that may be true. Um, take one example, take the reactions by Democrats across the spectrum to the crisis right now in Gaza. You've seen a split in the Democratic Party on that question with say more moderate and centrist Democrats supporting Israel and uh, say more left-wing Democrats being much more critical of Israel. Uh, let's say there's an aid package that Congress tries to pass to, to support Israel, uh, which of course is something that might be done by Congress in the next two to three weeks. You would see in that case, I think a strong left wing of the Democratic Party resistant to getting something done, right? They would have the same incentives to shut down that effort that say some conservative Republicans had in the last couple of weeks. So I could easily foresee a scenario where there's a Republican president in the next eight years, a Republican Senate, and a Democratic House with a very narrow majority. And I could see certain members of the Democratic Party doing the same thing to say a Speaker Hakeem Jeffries that Republicans have done to Speaker McCarthy. I would not be surprised to see that. And the basic reason is because the same forces that weaken the Republican Party are also weakening the Democratic Party these days. Um, it's interesting that if 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 there is some element of the Republican Party, as you mentioned, that would prefer to get government to get nothing done rather than something, or at least in favor of that basic idea, um, you know, one of the leaders, obviously one of the people who had been who had gone for speaker, and I think three did not get the requisite votes three times, was of course Representative Jim Jordan, who also is one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus. Um, which is clearly a small, limited government, small government, conservative part of the Republican Party. I, I think a lot of our listeners would be curious to know your thoughts on why Jim Jordan was not able to bridge the gap between the various groups and personalities in the Republican Party and get the speakership. Yeah, that actually was maybe the most surprising thing out of the whole episode over the last three weeks is that Speaker Jordan was not an inevitability. Because assuming that Speaker McCarthy was ousted for not being conservative enough, well, how can you how can you do better if you're a conservative than Speaker Jordan? And the reason is because when the Republicans have, say, a 10-vote majority in the House of Representatives, it's not just the eight conservatives who can vote to oust Speaker McCarthy. It's also the 20 or so moderates who can prevent Speaker Jordan from becoming speaker, right? Speaker designate majority, uh, Jordan from reaching that majority. So what was interesting about this was that the moderates actually played their cards the same way that the conservatives in the Republican Party played theirs over the last few weeks. And from a certain logic, you would have expected the moderates to be more forceful than the conservatives the whole time because the, the moderates are the in the Republican Party 
or in any party that's in a two-party system, they're the ones who have the most power. They're the ones that have another option. Moderates can go to the Democratic Party and join that party by, you know, because they're more inclined to go in that direction. Whereas conservatives in the Republican Party seem to have no options. Where are they going to go? The Democratic Party is certainly not the place where they'll find a home that, that they want to be in. So in a way, you would have expected them, uh, uh, moderates in the Republican Party to always have the upper hand. What was interesting is that they finally realized in this case they did have the upper hand and they played that hand pretty pretty well to deny Jordan the speakership. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to learn a little more about the Ashbrook Center and how you can help us continue our work with teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashbrook. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org backslash support. I've heard some some members of Congress uh, in both parties describe uh, or a contrast made between political moderates and institutional moderates. So, for example, that there are conservatives in the Republican Party who are politically very conservative, but institutionally moderate, uh, attached to the institution of Congress and the House of Representatives. Are we seeing any of that play out? Yeah, I think that's a critical distinction, and I'm really glad you put it really nicely, actually, that you can be policy-wise very conservative, but you understand that the institution has to work in order for you to get to those policy goals, and so you work inside the institution to reform it. I think that you saw that on display in the vote to oust Speaker McCarthy. So this is now, it feels like ancient history. It was only three weeks ago. Uh, the eight people who voted to oust McCarthy weren't really consistently conservative Republicans. So one member in particular, speak, uh, Representative Nancy Mace, uh, she said that she voted against McCarthy because he committed to putting a national uh, a, a bill on the floor to nationalize and legalize abortion. So she was actually voting to oust McCarthy, not because he was too moderate, but because he was too conservative. In other words, the eight members who voted to oust McCarthy were all over the place ideologically, but they all had something in common, which was that they were willing to use the institutional power they had to advance their own career goals. In other words, they acted as individuals. So many people pointed this out about Matt Gates that he was fundraising really effectively off of his efforts to oust McCarthy. He had built himself a sort of national media presence. It was he got fame and he got fortune out of what he did. Whereas, say, there are other members of the Freedom Caucus, very prominent ones, like 
Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, or somebody like a Jim Jordan, uh, say Thomas Massey from Kentucky. These are all very, very conservative members of the Republican Party who did not vote to oust McCarthy. So I think you saw that distinction between uh, sort of institutional moderates and political conservatives and just people who were really just sort of acting as individuals with their own individual goals rather than uh, policy and partisan goals in mind. I think you mentioned earlier that the, the last time or one of the last times that a speaker faced uh, a, a vote to vacate was uh, Joe Cannon back in 1910. And I was just wondering, is there any historical precedent for what's happening today in the House of Representatives? Yeah, so there there is. And you have to go back much further than 1910 to find what we're dealing with now, which is a series of votes over and over again without a, a majority uh, speaker candidate uh, emerging. So really, the, there are four elections that present this kind of pattern. But it's interesting, the timing of those elections. And I know immediately what, uh, say, maybe some of our, our listeners will conclude. So the, the elections are 1839, 1849, 1855 and 1859. So those are four speaker elections where they vote many times and no candidate can get a majority over several rounds of voting. And on one of these, they actually have over 130 ballots before they choose a speaker. On a couple of occasions, they just decide to go with the plurality rule, which is you can't get a majority, but if you can just get a plurality of the votes, then we'll make you speaker because we know no speaker can get to a majority. And the basic reason, as I think uh, the history illustrates, uh, is that you had essentially the fracturing of the two-party system into a multi-party system at that time. So instead of two candidates for speaker, you'd get four or five, therefore no candidate reaching a majority very easily. So actually we're seeing this resembles more of that pattern leading up to the Civil War. Uh, that's kind of where you have to go to find the historical analogy. And in the end, all those four instances, was a speaker chosen? Yes. In every uh, election, they chose a speaker, but they often had to bend the rules to, to accomplish that goal. What do you think the prospects are of bending the rules uh, in, in the current environment and say, for example, you, we're not going to require a majority. We'll just say whoever gets the most votes. Yeah, the difficulty with that, of course, that would be an interesting experiment to run on the floor of the House, because if you did that, based on the previous votes, it would be Speaker Hakeem Jeffries, and you would have a Democratic Speaker of the House. I do think, though, if you forced that vote to happen, and you put Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, or any of the current candidates on the floor, and you said whoever gets the most votes will be Speaker of the House, you would see a lot of these people who are voting for other candidates consolidate their votes behind the Republican. So in a way, if you forced that rule onto the House, you'd probably see only two candidates getting votes and whoever the Republican was would would win that that election. Uh, but of course, the House, I would assume, would have to vote to approve that rule for electing the speaker. Right. And that would strip all of these people from their power to veto any of the candidates that the Republican Party puts together. And so you wouldn't reach the 217 votes to reach the procedural rule, which means you can't get to the 217 votes you need to reach the, the substantive question of who's going to be the speaker. 
So if it's not just as you're saying, and I think this is very interesting, it's not just sort of um, a problem in the Republican Party that this factions and groups and personalities are in conflict. Uh, that's what it looks like. But underneath that, you're arguing that it's a bigger problem that could and perhaps will affect the Democratic Party down the line if they're ever in the majority in the House. Um, it's the problem is weak political parties. I think some of our listeners would have be curious to know your view. And maybe it's a I know it's a big question. Maybe it's unfair. But why have political parties, in your view, be what do you mean by the fact that they've become weak and why have they become weak? Yeah, that's obviously a huge question, as you suggest. So um, to oversimplify it, I think parties used to have three roles that they no longer have today. The first was they used to control the candidates that they select. So we're sort of familiar with these smoke-filled rooms in the 19th century, these nominating conventions where the delegates would come together and try to sort out who the candidate was going to be. Today, of course, we nominate our candidates through primaries. This means that the party can sort of, as, a, as an organization, be opposed to a candidate, but that candidate can still win the party's nomination actually by opposing the party itself. And arguably, you would say that Donald Trump winning the nomination in 2016 for president was an illustration of a hostile takeover of the Republican Party by an outsider who co-opted it. So first, first thing, parties have sort of lost their control over their own candidates. Secondly, parties used to distribute patronage, which meant that there were people who would be loyal to the party, they would vote with the party, and then the party would give them sort of benefits in exchange for that, right? So machines, bosses, Tammany Hall, all of those kinds of things that we associate with patronage. Today we have not a patronage system, but a merit-based system. Essentially, a, a sort of bureaucracy has replaced the parties where the, the positions in government are distributed on a nonpartisan basis. You pass a civil service exam, you get the position. And so this is weak in loyalty to parties. It's weak in the ability of parties to build up their machines. And then the third um, is campaign finance. So parties used to fund candidates. They used to have much more power to build these organizations that would turn out the vote, and then they would give the candidates this, this apparatus to turn out the vote on election day. Today, candidates have to build their own app campaign apparatus. They have to hire their own consultants. They have to hire their own volunteers, which means they have to raise their own money and they do this from PACs, which are basically independent groups as opposed to party-based party groups. And so when you put all of those three things together, you get a system that essentially is a candidate-centered system rather than a party-centered system. Candidates raise their own money, they build their own machines, and then when they win an election, they're not loyal to anybody else in their so-called party because they didn't use their party to get elected in the first place. So. You have people with the R and the D behind their name, but they don't really have a lot of loyalty to the party as a whole. And so you get this interesting thing where people are very uh, tied to their parties in terms of voters, right? Republican voters tend to vote Republican rather than switch parties back and forth, but they don't love the Republican party very much. And the same thing I think is true of Democrats. The only thing that really unites the parties is hostility to the other party. We call this negative partisanship. So you have essentially a system that's built for weak loyalty, for gridlock, for individual incentives, but not really for collective governance and collective deliberation. So assuming those three factors don't change, and it doesn't seem like they're going to change anytime soon, 
we're going to continue to have weak political parties and outside of the halls of Congress, but also inside Congress in places like the House of Representatives. If that's true, um, I'll put you on the spot, Joe. What, a, what do you predict about this particular speaker's race? How is it going to get resolved? And maybe longer term in the future, will we continue to see this kind of institutional situation? Yeah. The short-term question is really interesting. Um, based on the last three, so what, you had uh, McCarthy, then Scalise, then Jordan. Scalise never made it to the floor, but he was clearly the nominee for, for a period of time. Uh, it wouldn't seem like there's much optimism for seeing uh, a, a speaker being chosen in the next few weeks. I do think it might just be easier to just let the current speaker pro tem uh, Patrick McHenry, just let him sort of preside over the chamber and see what happens. But I do think Republicans are increasingly exhausted with what's going on in the House. And so I think there might be a way towards a sort of exhaustion point where whoever comes out of this vote that's taking place literally right now as we speak inside the Republican conference to choose their next nominee, there might be a point of exhaustion where everybody just says, okay, fine, Let's just go forward with this person and, and be done with it. Um, in the long run, that's a fascinating question. Where are we going from here? I do think you're right. We're not getting rid of primaries. We're not getting rid of this campaign finance apparatus we have, and we're not returning to patronage. So we're sort of on this trajectory. But I do think we're reaching a point of exhaustion with the current political system, with a system that produces very strong individuals, but not a sense of a government that works together to solve problems. So we are reaching, I think, a point where people are increasingly exhausted and will look to big changes to try to move in a new direction. What I'm concerned about really is that we we embrace more fundamental changes that get rid of the two-party system altogether. So things like proportional representation, things like um, ranked choice voting, top two primary systems, which you're seeing happen in a lot of these states that are actually going to make it uh, more like a multi-party system. And I think that will actually decrease the incentives for working together. And I, I'm a little concerned that we're actually maybe going to make the problem worse in the coming decades rather than make it better. Well, that's a serious uh, warning for us and serious thing to consider. Uh, from a guy who predicted that Kevin McCarthy might not remain as speaker. So we're, we'll take those words to heart, Joe, and ponder them. Thank you again for taking the time to be with us today on this very interesting and special episode of The American Idea. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.